Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are both U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are those of the host, not official military policy. And the opinions expressed by me are my own, not those of my employer or any other businesses that I happen to be associated with. For today's episode, we have a pair of special guests, Leela Demonis and Jason Kirk. Thanks for coming on the cast. Could you give us an intro? Yeah, John, Rich, Kyle, thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, Captain Dumanis, uh, just kind of a short uh, background information on me. Uh, I have not a traditional, I think, background for those in the 1700 community, but since the MOS is so new, uh, there were a few people that lap moved in from uh, from other MOSs. So I came into the Marine Corps as a 2621, that's a Signals Intelligence Collection and Processing Analyst. Uh, I wanted to be a 2600 warrant officer, but I think I got lucky because um, I got to become an 0205, which used to be a master analyst. It's now considered the intelligence operations infusion warrant officer. And really, the difference between you know SIGINT and then being an 0205 is that when I hit 0205, I got to see what all of the other intelligence disciplines uh, provide MAGTAF, commanders and decision makers. And it was really quite, uh, quite eye-opening. So while I would have loved to stay in SIGINT the entire time, I think uh, having the opportunity to be an O2, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, after O2, O5, I had uh, the itch to get back into something technical, and the Marine Corps created the 1700 uh, community in 2018. So I requested a lap move. Um, I had a few courses and certificates that made me, you know, competitive for that position, and I became a 1710 as a Chief Warrant Officer, and that is the Offensive Cyberspace Weapons Officer. Uh, following that, I also submitted to become a limited duty officer, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. Uh, so I moved again and became a 1705, which is a cyberspace warfare development officer. Uh, so I've done quite a few things throughout my time in the Marine Corps. Most of it was supporting Intel in some way, shape, or form. I did uh, Intel support to defensive cyberspace operations, Intel support to offensive cyberspace operations. I did uh, all source infusion, working out in Okinawa for a few years. And I am currently the commander of 700 Combat Support Team. And my team provides uh, software and then signals intelligence development to the combat mission teams, which are the maneuver elements we use in cyberspace. So I'll turn it over to you, Jason. Thanks. Uh, well, hi, everybody. I appreciate you having me. This is interesting. I've listened to thousands of podcasts. Nobody's ever asked me to be on one. Um, in preparation for this, I listened to the last few podcasts to you guys, and I, I tell you what, you're, uh, you must have ran out of important people to talk to. It's, uh, it's an honor, though. Um, so I have a very different background than uh, Layla. I, uh, I joined the Marine Corps in 96 as a technician. I repaired telecom equipment, and uh, the MOSs have changed a lot on the comm side of the house over the years. So uh, I, in 2005, I became a warrant officer that used to be a telecom systems maintenance officer. It was a 2800. And then uh, later that year, that's when they realigned the 4,000 series warrant officers, the 2,800 warrant officers, and the 2,500 warrant officers to make that thing that we now call a speed cell. So I came into that in 05 and uh, did that until I retired in 2020. So 15 years I was a warrant officer, retired last year. Uh, now I'm a systems engineer, still supporting the Marine Corps. But uh, yeah, during that time, started out as a telecom engineer. Um, we shuffled things again. Uh, and I became a network engineer my, my last couple of years as a warrant officer. So I just want to state the obvious for all the listeners out there. For the first time in my entire history of hosting this podcast with these two fine lieutenant colonels, the warrant officers outnumber the restricted officers. Uh, or 
and this is just the best day ever for me. I get to hang out with a bunch of other red squares and this is the jam. Yeah, you all can't see it, but Kyle is grinning ear to ear. Ear to ear. Uh, Nerding out with warrant officers. I haven't had this happen in like eight years. This is awesome. Okay, before we get too nerdy, let let the generalist uh, set the scene for you all. So um, for the listeners who may not be super familiar with how the military is organized, the general scheme you probably have heard of is you have enlisted Marines who are the specialists, the doers, and then we have the officers, which you, you never normally hear restricted and unrestricted officers, but people like Rich and myself are unrestricted officers generalists who technically can be assigned to any job that there is out there provisionally or otherwise we can do anything that a quote military officer gets assigned to in the marine corps there is a third bin that people generally don't talk about which are restricted officers and inside of that bin you have both warrant officers and limited duty officers so uh real quickly uh, Leela and Jason, can you give us how you went from enlisted to restricted officer and why did you choose to do it at that rank? Because I know that's something that a lot of people really go back and forth on. So what was your thought process in both doing that and, and why did you transition at the rank that you did? Yeah, I can uh, I can start. So I transitioned as a staff NCO and at that time I was still a SIGINTER and I had the opportunity to work with some pretty amazing leaders. So I'm going to call him out. I asked him for permission. He said it was okay for me to use his name. Uh, Eric Slater, who was at the time a chief warrant officer with me at a second radio battalion. And I know for, um, you know, to the point, John, that you just made, it's technical expertise, which is why people progress from enlisted to warrant officer. But I think one of the things Eric did, and I strive, you know, every day to be as good as he was, is the communication aspect. So it's one thing to understand your trade. It's another thing to be able to communicate that to decision makers that haven't had your background. So I think, you know, when chief warrant officers make warrant officer and they go to TBS, they were already boarded. They already, you know, stood the test of being a technical expert in their field. I think what really made me want to transition, and I did it as soon as I could. So, you know, the day I was able to submit for warrant officer, I submitted to become warrant officer, which... Plus one for that. Yeah, it's eight years. Uh, You have to be eight years at the time of appointment. The schools start January, February. So as long as you are at eight years by January, February, you can submit for um, the board, which usually goes the previous year. Uh, so, I mean, that was that was what I wanted to do and just having the influence, be able to take complex tasks, things that even people I think that are technical experts have trouble explaining and be able to explain that to either affect the battle space or uh, affect policy. That's that's what I was looking for. Um, I think that's what you're looking for. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And uh, Jason, how about you? I sort of got my arm twisted. Uh I was a staff sergeant with three years in grade when I made warrant officer. I was young too. I had eight years in, eight and a half years in when I pinned on warrant officer. But I had a, uh, I, I came from an OC field that was all restricted officers. We didn't have any unrestricted officers in my OC field. So that was a really normal thing to think about to become a warrant officer. But I always thought 12, 13 years, maybe when I was a gunny, I'd do something like that. But I had this chief warrant officer too I worked for who would come down to my office and every day say, hey, where's your warrant officer package? And I'd say, sir, you're not going to you're not going to push me into this. I don't I don't think I want to do it yet. And he just kind of nod his head and leave. And the next day he'd come back and say, where's your warrant officer package? He did that for weeks. And uh, it, it made me think about it a lot. And uh, I, I went ahead and obviously I did it. It worked out. I got it on my first try. And so, yes, thanks to that guy. I did it when I did it. Um, 
and I think it worked out for the best for me. I know when you look at the board statistics every year, there's a handful of sergeants. There's usually like a master sergeant or two. And then the rest is probably like, I don't know, 80% staff sergeants, 20% gunnies. So if you pick up warrant officers as a staff sergeant, that's pretty much the norm. Um, so for me, it worked out. I was young enough to still be impressionable, but I've been around long enough to uh, learn some things to help me do, do well at that. So that's kind of how I came in. I think there's an appropriate balance of salty and uh, impressionable that it takes to like really enter smartly into the warrant officer program. And, and thank you uh, to whoever it is that pestered you on a daily basis. Uh, ju just from me to that individual, thank you very much. Uh, Leela, you want to add something? Yeah. I, are we allowed to double click on stuff or is that just you guys? You can double or even yeah. triple click yeah. if you so feel. I think I have quadruple clicked once. Just throw it out there. <laughs> Uh, Jason's comments about having like a mentor that pushed him to do it. I don't know how many, there are some amazing people I, across communities in the Marine Corps, but I think there's some amazing people and they just, for whatever reason, don't think they're good enough to submit or, you know, they have other things going on and they haven't prioritized it. So for all the Marine Corps leaders that are listening, if there's somebody that you know would make a great warrant officer, like bug them and continue to bug them. Cause you never know. And I, People that say like, oh, I'm going to wait till next year. I'm like, you can always deny it. The community will hate you. That's exactly you right. It. That's right. But you, I, you have nothing to lose by trying if you're interested. 100% agree. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add in something there. So what Leela mentioned there, I, I was going to save this potentially for, for a knife hand moment at the end, but, uh, but you guys beat me to it, as you should, as restricted officers. But uh, you know, that's grassroots talent management right there. Right. That, that's when we talk about talent management and there's is there some strategic Marine Corps body that's going to manage the talent across occupational specialties. There's nothing better than somebody in your future officer corps reaching down into the enlisted ranks and saying, you've got it. You've got all the right raw materials like we just need to get you through some formal training so you understand the breadth and scope of your responsibilities. And then we put some stuff on your collar and then you're rocking and rolling. So completely agree. Yeah. And I just want to say also, uh, kind of very much counter to Jason's point where Jason was surrounded by, uh, by restricted officers and that, that was normal for him. I'd like to point out that's not, you know, that's one of those mileage may vary type scenarios because I remember vividly being at the comm battalion where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, very, very large battalion and saying to the Marines, like, hey, do you know what a warrant officer is? And getting the majority response being, no, I have never heard of that. And then I pointed to the building, like three buildings over where, where they worked at. And I was like, you should go over and talk to them because this, this stuff you need to know, they know, and they can teach you. Uh, but, you know, it is not necessarily the everyday experience of a Marine and especially Jason's rank uh, or his last rank before he retired as chief warrant officer five. They call that the unicorn for a reason, because yep. a good number of people make it an entire Marine Corps career, never having seen one of those mythical beings. Uh, so <laughs> talking like Rich says, talking about this and then understanding that mileage very much might vary and that you might need to kind of make that unnatural uh, connection happen uh, through good officership and through good talent management is something everyone should be considering. I'll also say that even as a chief warrant officer, I still considered seeing a chief warrant officer five, a unicorn spotting moment. It was, it was a big deal. Okay. So we, we talked about how you got started. So real quickly, we have 
so Leela is a captain and Jason got uh, retired as a chief warrant officer five. So the difference there being warrant officer and limited duty officer. So could you real quick and, and Leela, why don't you lead us off here? Because you, you are that like, what does the TM say for what a limited duty officer is and what made you want to do that? Yeah. And uh, for anybody that wants a little light reading, the uh, Secretary of the Navy instruction is 1412.9 Bravo. So if you want like the Marine Corps. This is a trap. Don't do it. (laughs) If you want the Marine Corps definition for what all those roles are, that is the order that you need to look at. Um, So I actually, I've heard a lot of things from a few people. I had to look it up, to be completely honest, to get the difference between you know, an LDO, you are supposed to be a little bit more on the officer managerial side and a chief warrant officer is a little bit technical, like the actual line. Um, I wasn't quite sure. And even reading that instruction, it is a little bit vague, but they do give some pretty solid definitions. So in my own words, what I would say is that the uh, chief warrant officer community, you're still the doer of the thing. So you are still the technical expert that's in there, either advising and listen, and then, you know, making sure that the officers you're working for understand exactly what you're doing. Uh, in the best way that you can on the technical side. And the limited duty officer is kind of a level above that where they might not be you know, on keyboard every day for the community that I'm in, uh, but they are managing those technical experts and they act as the conduit between people doing the thing and people that need to know to make decisions about those actions. And then, yeah, I'll turn it over to you guys if you had anything else to add. I won't read off the definitions, but I do have them if anybody wants uh, wants to see them. And Jason, I just want to say I am very interested after your 15 years of living in this world and seeing the interactions and wondering, does reality match up to what the 1412.9 Bravo uh, actually say? I cannot wait to hear uh, all of that stuff. But real quick, I'm going to kick it to Kyle. Uh, And I also want to just give a little bit of my opinion here. This is not official military doctrine in any way, shape or form. But I will say that in my experience, the limited duty officers are much more involved in setting and evangelizing for enhancements to policy. I think that Chief Warrant Officer Fives bleed into that realm a great deal because they're just seen as these, this incredible experience, tip of the spear thing. But in general practice, as a Chief Warrant Officer, as a Warrant Officer, Chief Warrant Officer 2 and Chief Warrant Officer 3, to Layla's point, you're going to be very tactical. You're going to be at the battalion level, training in the battalion level, like helping execute on mission. And as an LDO, you may still be involved in those chains, but you're evangelizing at the headquarters Marine Corps level or at the entire, um, you know, div, uh, not division, but, you know, like geographic level at the campaign level in order to get policy and procedure pushed through and set standards. It's a it's a different mind shift. So if you think of like the strategic operational and tactical level, warrant officer is going to sit at the operational and tactical and the LDO is going to sit strategic and operational. So. You know, Layla mentioned the definition, and, and she's right. I agree. It's, it's really vague. And um, so I guess what the, what the warrant officers do, let me start there. And if I can explain that based off some specific examples. So let's say Lieutenant Schreiner is an infantry battalion S6. He's a generalist. His comm chief is a generalist. They have a few specialists because there's a lot of stuff to know in comm. And for one lieutenant and mass sergeant to do it all, it's just it's, it's too much. So him and the mass sergeant are supposed to be an inch deep and a mile wide. But he's got three staff sergeants. He's got one guy that does RF stuff, one girl that does uh, system stuff, one guy that does network stuff. Those are his specialists. You know, later on down the line, Major Shriner is an infantry battalion S6 uh, or maybe a Mu S6. And then he's got a few gunnies, right? So they're a little bit more experienced as his specialists. And then later on down the line, Lieutenant Colonel Shriner is the division G6. 
So now you can't have somebody more senior than a gunny who's still enlisted, who's a specialist, because that person became a master sergeant. So now he's got a few CWO2s or 3s that focus on those same three areas, but they do so at a higher level in the MAGTAF. And then up at the MEF level, you've got a few CWO4s plus a spectrum guy doing the same kind of stuff. So the specialists that are the comm warrant officers do the same kinds of things the enlisted people do. They generally just do them at higher echelons. Um, and, and I think it works. Um, the thing that we've always struggled with in the comm field is how do we distribute the duties between those three or four people? And that's something that'll continue to change. But, but I think the concept of having enlisted and officer generalists and some specialists that help prop them up to do other stuff. So, you know, uh, you can do a tour on a special duty assignment or you can go do a joint tour or something like that. And you can come back and you got a guy like me who just does the same thing for years and years and years. Um, cause I'm not well-rounded, you know, you're, you're supposed to be well-rounded, the unrestricted person. Uh, the warrant officers are specialists in their field. We're generally not looked at to be able to go out and do anything anywhere like you guys are. So that's kind of how I'd sum up the warrant officers in the comm field. And I would caveat too that how warrant officers are used is different between op fields. Um, so, and, and one of those differences, let's, let's talk about LDOs. So if warrant officers do those technical duties that are above and beyond the uh, assigned responsibility of a staff and CO, LDOs are supposed to do those kind of technical officer kind of duties that are above and beyond the scope of a warrant officer. It's sort of how the definition reads last time I read it. So some fields, let's take the 2800s, for example, they'll take an LDO major, make him a company commander in command of five platoon commanders who are chief warrant officer threes. Makes sense. Uh, now look at IPAC. IPAC, you'll have a bunch of CWO twos and threes who run the parts of IPAC with the CWO four or five as their reporting senior. He's their boss. He writes their awards and fitness reports. So that's two fields that do pretty much the same thing with and without LDOs. So when we picked up warrant officer, it's a pretty big process, right? So we get a new shiny thing to wear. We kind of join a new peer group. We go to six plus months of school to learn how to do that. I don't think that in the comm field, we set up our LDOs to be terribly different because they submit a package. They get a thousand dollar raise. And Ominous Dominus, you're a captain. Congratulations, you're in charge of all these guys now. And I think that is what leads to my next thought, is that I have never seen a comm LDO do the same thing. Everywhere I go, what the 0605 does is different than the other place. Because they tend to gravitate towards what they're good at. We all do. So I've seen comm LDOs that are the head of the speed cell. I've seen comm LDOs that are in charge of some engineering group. I've seen some that do fires kind of stuff, like working more with the three. Um, it, it really kind of depends. They're doing great things, but I'm hopeful that's going to change. The, the other problem I think we had too is we used to have, up until a couple of years ago, only one of our four warrant officer MOSs had an LDO track to feed into. So when you have one set of job duties, that feeds LDO who has the same set of job duties. So if you want something senior to a chief warrant officer three, that's called a chief warrant officer four. Um, so really what we had before was just a branch. So you could have CWO three could become a captain or a CWO four. Neither one of them gets any extra schools. Neither one requires advanced degrees. So we're kind of surprised that they're not acting different. Why would they act different? So um, what we started a few years ago and a lot of people didn't like this, but 
couple years ago, the spectrum officers, the RF folks, the systems people and the network people could all feed into that LDO track. So when I retired a year ago, they still didn't have a school, but I'm hoping that that, not, that lack of a consistent background gets them the kind of argument that they need, the, the backing they need to have a school that can then set the standard for what these LDOs are supposed to do. And also, if, if you have one technical captain major in charge of four different technical chief warrant officers, that kind of makes more sense to me. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think I think things are going to change. I'm hopeful that they're going to change. But in the past, I think it's been a really mixed bag in our field. And it just depended on what that captain major, lieutenant colonel was good at when they were a chief warrant officer two or three, because there's a good chance they're still doing that as a major lieutenant colonel. Great. Uh, Jason, thank you for the, the feedback. I had a comment that actually relates to everything you just went over. So having that, you know, that background on the, um, the comms community, I think is really helpful. So the 1700 community, for those that don't know, again, it's only like three, four years old, but like the seniors, the guys and gals that wrote the policy for where we stand, looked at the TNR manual, they either came from a comm networking background or they came from the SIGINT community. So I don't think we have it right yet. And I know there's a lot of changes going on right now. So I won't speak to specifics because by the time uh, this podcast airs, it'll probably be something completely different. Uh, but what I will say is that I think that was recognized early. And Jason, to the points that you made, that's probably why it was recognized early is because we have some pretty smart uh, guys that are leading kind of what the organization and structure of enlisted to warrant officer uh, to LDO looks like. Um, not that, you know, we're going to get it right first time out the gate, but I think those lessons learned both from, you know, some of the struggles that the SIGIN community has had and the struggles that the comms community has had. I can see that. And it's, I mean, not that it's great that, you know, we're having these struggles too, but the fact that we have all of that experience to pull from, not that we're going to get it right on the first try, but, um, I think we're headed in the right direction. Yes. And I think we could probably do an entire podcast, uh, just on, 17 and whether you should be able to cross uh, disciplines like you talked about and whatever, because uh, that is a very, uh, we'll say, a lightning rod issue that lots of people would like to address. So I, I am mentally scheduling this for a later podcast so that we can give it its proper due, because I think that's something we need to we need to make an entire episode. However, get, getting back, because I love me some warrant officer, I, I want to get back to kind of the root of all this stuff. So take us back to Leela, day one with the red bars. Jason, day one with the red bars. So you pin those things on. Like, I definitely remember, like, I got through all the training. I pinned on the second lieutenant bars. It was like, ooh, there were some things I, were not to I was not told. Uh, so when you got pinned those red bars, what didn't they tell you? And what do you wish you could kind of go back to uh, Warrant Officer Demonis and Warrant Officer Kirk and say, hey, listen to this? Yeah, Jason, if you want to take this one first. Sure. Yeah, I can do that. So I, it was a double-edged sword, but my first battalion commander was a very, very hard man to work for. Um, he ended up getting relieved because of it, but, um, that made me learn really fast. He, he was just not a nice human. Uh, but I think what I learned was that the expectations were so much greater than what I would have thought. I remember when I was enlisted, I, ne I never knew what the warrant officers did. They were playing golf or something. I don't know. And then I picked up warrant officer and it probably had an impact on it too, because when I picked up warrant officer within 
six months of hitting the fleet, I was in Iraq. So I'm working 16 hours a day, at least seven days a week. Uh, I'm in charge at the time I was in charge of like 50 people. Um, I'm hardly sleeping. I'm hardly PTing. And I remember looking at some of the staff sergeants from my previous job playing spades thinking, well, this wasn't worth a $300 pay raise. What the hell did I get myself into? Um, so, <laughs> so, um, it, it worked out in the end. I, I'm really glad I did it. But to me, that, that was something that I didn't quite grasp until it happened to me was that the expectations were so much greater. Um, also it was, it was a lot more than just technical stuff. Now, I got really lucky when I got selected for warrant officer, I worked at our schoolhouse at McSess and that same boss who twisted my arm into applying, he literally cut me free of my duties for like five months and let me just play in our lab. So I got to just be a nerd for months before I picked up warrant officer, which was just awesome. He, he really, really set me up. So those things that I didn't know, I took the time to learn and, and it was great for me. But uh, what I learned at TBS and what I learned in my next handful of jobs, there's so much more than the technical stuff. I mean, I think by the time it was done, I was a platoon commander four times. I wrote like 300 fitness reports, wrote more than 100 awards. Uh, I learned to speak MAGTAF, joint operational, I did EWS and command and staff because, you know, the more you get promoted, let's say you're up at the MEF level. If you can't have a conversation with the MEF G3 COPSO and translate the outage that's happening right now to what it means to him is a colonel running ops for the MEF, then you're kind of useless and you're just going to get shoved aside and he's going to go find somebody that can. So that was the big thing to me that there, there's so much more to it than just knowing some technical stuff. So that, that's what I'd say to the new warrant officers is that you're an officer first and a technician second, that you can be the most technical person in the world. But if you don't have that foundation, uh, none of that other stuff matters. Awesome. And let me say just how jealous I am of the fact that you got turned loose to lab for five months. Like I will sign up for that right now. Listen, listen, you worked at the CTC for years. That was literally your life. You don't get to be jealous that you did that. You did that. What? Okay, captains don't touch the gear. Come on. Come on. So I have uh, two things for mine and some of it double clicks on what Jason already mentioned. Uh, and both of mine are kind of selfish. So this probably isn't a good representation as me as a leader, but it was my honest um, kind of punch in the gut when I picked up warrant officer. So uh, everyone's experience is different. I came from uh, the SIGIN community and I went to the O2 community. And what I noticed is that there are no programs, the awards, there aren't as many awards, there aren't as many schooling opportunities for chief warrant officers. And I think that's because the Marine Corps is like, we spent enough money on you. You're an expert and that's where you're going to be. So when it comes for training, it's very much like choose your own adventure and figure out training for yourself. I know that is not the same for all uh, of the MOSs, but in my experience, it was. So when I looked at you know, you search SIGINT or you search Intel in uh, in the MAR admin portal, and you have all of these options and programs and internships for unrestricted officers, and there is almost nothing for restricted officers. And you can work through, you know, your local commander to get an exception or a waiver, which I think a few people at MAR4 Cyber are actually doing right now with some amazing cyber programs we have. But the Marine Corps is like, you're an expert. We paid the money. You got to figure the rest out. So I think for me and my experience, that was the first thing I was like, what, what do you mean I can't do an NSA internship or I can't, you know, go and, and sit into this schoolhouse. The commander won't let me go for five months to go do this class. Uh, the other thing, and again, this probably just doesn't shed me in the best light, but 
uh, the transition is real. So going from enlisted to officer, everyone is at different levels of maturity when they hit TBS. And I really thought I was like, I have a great personality. Like people like me, I work well with others. I'm a team player. And there are, I think maybe three times in my career where I was like, I have to go reread some of the leadership books I read before with different eyes, or I have to find some new books to read. I think the biggest one was probably when I went from enlisted to warrant officer because there's just, and Jason, I think this is, you know, exactly to your point, technical expert all the way, but that doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to be an officer and what that officership looks like. So I think the second one, and what I would boil it down to for me specifically is most of the people that make it to TBS as warrant officers is because you're go-getters, you're shit hot at your command, and you're out there doing things. When you become a leader of Marines, it's not so much what you can do, but what are you enabling your Marines to do? So for me, I think it was, and again, this makes me look so bad, but it was so hard to like take a step back and watch other people fail or give them opportunities to fail in a safe environment. And I honestly, I still struggle with that. Uh, but those are probably the two things. I, I think that's a super common chief warrant officer trait, honestly, Layla. Um, w- this is dating me a little bit, although uh, I think it was 08 when I picked up uh, warrant officer for the first time. So I'm probably closer to you, Jason, than than Layla. But at the same time, the two things that were the most important to me was nobody when you when you're going through this journey, when you've been in for eight to 12 years or whatever it's going to be that you make that transition. The world has sort of been run on rails for you where, you know, you know exactly what you need to do to move from corporal to sergeant and sergeant to staff sergeant. You know how the selection board works. You know what your job is. You know exactly what you're being asked to do by your command. You know exactly when the ops are coming. Like you, you're very much like reactive to the plan and going and doing it. And when you make that switch to the warrant officer program or to any restricted officer program, the amount of freedom that you get to not be reactive anymore, but to instantly be trusted to be proactive was shocking to me. Like when I checked into my first command as a warrant officer, the captain who was the company commander was basically like, yeah, um, you know, get your bearings for a couple weeks. And then the CO really is interested in trying to figure out how we can live stream Marines returning from Iraq and Afghanistan on the tarmac so that their families who can't be here can watch it. And like, you know, if you have a uh, some kind of plan for that sometime in the next couple of months, we'd love to hear it. And just why don't you check in with me every couple of weeks? And I like had no idea what to do. I, 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 you know, the world had instantly opened. It was like a, it was like finishing level one of your open MMORPG or something like, and you just could go anywhere and do anything. And I, I was woefully unprepared by my training to that point to be successful in that. Now, I, I feel extremely lucky that I had a command that supported me and I had other warrant officers around me who were like, yeah, come hang out with us. And we'll show you what to do here. And they taught me how to be sort of super good initiative, also paired with super good judgment. And to uh, as maybe crappy as this sounds to say, I stopped asking for permission and I dared people to tell me no, which I think is a super critical warrant officer skill is to not demand that some captain or major is going to be like, I I hear you. And yes, you should go do that. But to just be like, I am doing this thing. And tell me if this is somehow going to screw with your world. And if not, I'll see you when it's done. Um, and the second piece after the like incredible freedom and terror of choose your own adventure life as a warrant officer is that you instantly need to develop the skill to manage up and manage across, which is not something that is universally um, trained, taught or um, experienced by that like mid to senior enlisted. Uh, you, you instantly have to know how to 
talk magtaf to, to use your words, Jason, like you instantly have to know how to do that. And you have to know to influence your commanders and influence across between different, you know, battalions or companies or squadrons or whatever it is that you've got there, because you need to instill cooperation with them and you don't have authority to do it. it you really have to rely back on almost like a favor culture. Like you, you can't be the a-hole. You have to like instill confidence in what you're doing and convince people that what you are doing is correct. And that takes time and it takes skill. Um, and, and those two things were the biggest shockers to me when I picked up. I mean, having seen this now through the lens of being an executive on the outside world, they were phenomenal training opportunities and personal growth opportunities. And the sink or swim capability of that was unparalleled to prepare me for the outside world. But at the same token, I was stressed my first couple of months as a warrant officer. Yes. Providing phenomenal training and learning opportunities. I, I love that. Yes. that. That's a good lens. <laughs> and yes, that is, that is definitely something that, uh, you know, one, one we've, we've all kind of been thrown into and also, uh, you know, some of us uh, give people the opportunity to experience from time yeah, to time. It's, it's a character building exercise, right? That's, that's the polite way to describe it. Yeah. So, um, you guys actually asked, answered the questions that I was going to ask around training. So rather than repeat those, I have some ad hoc stuff just to kind of, you know, I guess use a phrase tip and cue off of what you guys were just talking about. So, so the first thing, and I'll start with a, a comment and I'll ask a, a couple questions. So the first comment is, I think, you know, Lila, you mentioned the transition is real, right? Like there is something that occurs in that transition when, you know, you pin on the rank. But I guess what I wanted to mention is my comment is I'm pretty sure the people that looked at you and Jason believe that you were virtually wearing the red bars prior to you going into the training pipeline, right? So I think that there's a bunch of things that the Marine Corps does pretty well. And one of them, I believe, is preparing folks to actually pin on that next rank and then be in that role by just identifying the people that have the raw skills and talents to do it already. I'm not saying we're great at talent management, but what I'm saying is that I think that there are a few of the enlisted uh, professionals that are identified to carry the operational technical experience forward. Because I don't think it's just the tech, to Jason's point. I think it's all this experience, like for example, you know, post 2001, there was a significant amount of operational tempo that increased, right? Whether you were enlisted or officer and somebody in the organization said, these people should be around for the long run. Check that box, right? Second box is maybe they should be wearing this rank so that they can influence at different levels like Jason was pointing out. So I, I just wanted to make that comment. I mean, I think whether you're a uh, warrant officer or a limited duty officer, the beauty about you being in that role is not only do you take for the technical expertise and ensure that it like persists within the service component, but that you're carrying that operational experience forward, which is really hard to train for those who actually haven't been put in that environment, which is Kyle's point, right? Like there's when you're actually in an area of hostility, there's no better training, right? You, you can't recreate that. You could simulate it in like what the common out uh, you know, published in MCDP seven learning, where he talks about education and training and how we try to simulate the most severe environment. Uh, but I think you actually have to experience that. So, uh, where I want to go with my questions and, and sorry for the rant there, the, the unrestricted officer rant. <laughs> uh, but my, my questions to, to both of you are, uh, so recognizing that the transition is real 
and you're now a leader of managers or a leader of specialists versus just a leader of Marines. There's some other caveats that those Marines now possess. Um, you know, from your perspective, like how do you stay current enough in your occupational fields? Because you're still looked at as a specialist, right? Regardless of what level you sit at, like how do you stay current? And then and the second part is how does that currency feed innovation, right? Like how, how do you look at like how to stay current and then what it is you want to change in the Marine Corps and then be the change agent for that change? And that's a lot. But if we could just start with like, how do you stay current? Then we could probably move into the innovation stuff. But uh, I kick it over to whoever wants to pick that one up first. All right. Uh, so staying current, um, I think it was mentioned by a few folks earlier that kind of depending on where you are and who you're working for, the job, your responsibilities and what's expected of you can change. Um, so I think for me specifically staying current was like going and getting my degree, which I got outside of the Marine Corps. So I got a degree in cybersecurity. And then, you know, this thing called big data started coming out when I was supporting DCO uh, with uh, intelligence support to DCO. So uh, I'm currently going for my master's in data analytics. And that's going to tie into, uh, you know, what I hope to do in the future as big data comes online a little bit more with the Marine Corps. It's not something I'm working for now, but I am expecting that at some point um, I will have that. So that's probably not ideal, especially with people that have families and really long jobs and maybe they're pursuing other type of uh, other types of certificates. But I think that's one avenue that uh, you can look at just professional education, going back to school, getting an additional degree or getting a certificate. And then I would also, and I think Marfor Cyber does this pretty well, is they have contracts with uh, multiple vendors that provide additional certificates that you can get. There's additional training plans. And a lot of that is going to be command specific, but still pertaining to your MLS. So my recommendation to everybody else would be to just look and see if there are any contracts like that that exist in your sphere of influence and then try to leverage what's already there at your command because somebody has identified, hey, this is a thing that we need. It's possibly already paid for. And that's something that, that you might be able to jump on. And Jason, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, so with the staying current, I... I did something when I was younger as a warrant officer that I, th I think I got lucky. I, I went to a conference. I was a CW2. And one of the tasks I had when I went there from the schoolhouse was make a training continuum for all the different MOSs. So as a CW2, I got to sit down and say, well, hell, I think as a W1, we should do this. And as a two, we should do this. And as a three, we should do this. And uh, I worked with the other MOSs to do that for all the different MOSs there. And then I brought them back, handed them back to McSess, and they went to TCOM and went into the black hole and nothing happened with them. But the one thing that came out of that was uh, I followed it. So for me, in my time as a warrant officer, I, I kind of looked at it as uh, like three prongs, right? So there's my civilian education, which I stuck with IT and security kind of stuff. So I had no degree. I got an associate's degree, then a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree. My uh, certifications had none of those. So you know, if I wanted to learn a thing, like I, I repaired old TDM switchboards. That was my thing, right? The writing's on the wall, that stuff's going away. And people like then Captain Schreiner uh, were a huge help to me on that. Um, I changed my degree plan at the time. I started taking certifications. I uh, got some CCNAs, CCNP, CISSP, stuff like that. And then there's the, the PME part, right? So you got to speak Marine and you can have your CCIE, but if you're not PME complete, you're not going to get promoted. So I went to EWS, went to command of staff. Yeah, some people get it anyway. You, you can you can slip through. I know that can't require PME, but uh, but it can really hurt you to not get that. So 
Um, yeah, I got lucky as a young warrant officer, made a kind of a training continuum that says from W1 to W5, this is what my MOS should do. And I just followed it. And it worked out for me to keep me current. Um, to the second part of your question about innovation, I think that some people are innovators and some people are maintainers, and it takes both in the world, right? Because you've probably seen this where you get a commander that comes in and he, he or she's an innovator. They turn the place upside down, they make change, but oh man, there's a lot of chaos. There's a lot of stuff that's a mess that needs cleaned up. I'm not an innovator. I, I'm not. I am more of a maintainer and I make small incremental changes. That's how I'd rather do things. That's how I'm more comfortable. I don't know if I, it's safer to me. But um, so I think the way I would I innovate is in small steps. So if I am planning this part of the network for whatever unit I'm sitting at the top of, I need to look at the past exercise, see what it looked like, see what the pro, how, how good we did at it, and then get to talking to the Marines to find out what they're good at, what they're not good at. And then I design a few things into the next network that help challenge them just enough that we're still going to be successful and provide reliable comms to the customer. And they get to learn some. But I think when you're writing the plan for a battalion or division or a MEF, if you're up at the top in that speed cell and you're trying to innovate, but that comm unit doesn't know how to do that, you just failed. And the point of most of those exercises is not comm. It's operations. And comm supports that. So, um, yeah, I think I, I took innovation in smaller steps. I tried to incrementally innovate rather than big sweeping changes. And that's just kind of more in line with how I do things. Yeah. And I just wanted to tack on there uh, two things. One, Jason, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. I, I would argue you are an innovator with a heavy dose of reality in that innovator. And then there's the innovators who just don't care about reality and are going to innovate for innovation's sake. Uh, but the, the second point in your face, Kyle, um, the second point I wanted to make is Remember, there's a human dimension to all of this stuff. So Leela and Jason ju just mentioned going through classes or doing certifications or anything like that. These things are done by human beings. So one of the things that I've done that I, I feel like I've done pretty successfully is as I go to a class, I'm keeping an eye on who the in instructor is. I'm seeing what they're doing on Twitter or other areas. I'm looking at the book. I'm seeing who the author is. I'm looking at what they're doing uh, because some of this stuff as it's presented to you is a little bit static and the world is a little bit more dynamic. So as you look at these people as people and see what they're currently doing, that can really give you a jolt into how you can kind of get ahead of things and look at it a little bit differently and possibly short circuit the publication cycle of training, which is, is very difficult just from a logistical standpoint to keep up with. I also want to uh, emphasize something that Jason just said, which is the difference between the innovator and the maintainer. I feel really strongly that innovation in general is an extremely lonely, isolating event, right? In order to innovate, you simply can't do that with a large audience. You can't. It will, it will dilute everything. You'll have too many uh, chefs in the kitchen or whatever you want to call it. Um, and maintenance is an extremely collaborative process. It, it, by definition, cannot be lonely. It requires cooperation and coordination with others. And I think that in, in sort of a warrant officer specific field, and, and this bridges a little bit into potentially our next subject, but you have to be able to evangelize and demonstrate the maintenance of the skills that are necessary for your TO and TE and the mission that your particular area has to accomplish. While at the same time, you have to be balancing the innovation of how to drag all those people into the future to some extent, right? And that sounds a little more violent than it should have, but just how do you convince lots and lots of people, both 
your seniors, your peers, your juniors to do something different. And that by, you know, it takes a different set of skills. I completely agree with you, Jason. I also think that there is a massive balancing act that has to happen continuously as we prepare our Marines to execute and the Marines that we are in charge of from a communications or, or cyber warfare perspective to execute. And then how do you take baby steps into the future? How do you take baby steps into new capabilities or new tools for the toolbox? Yeah, Lila, so innovation, go before we kick it back over to John. Yeah, I think um, so what we can do or what people in the community can do, there's, you know, TNR events, there's working groups. Uh, I won't name names, but I know the uh, 1710s at Marfor Cyber, they meet every two weeks and they plan their, you know, maniacal schemes for what they want their community to look like. Uh, but I absolutely agree with the innovator and maintainer. I think I'm probably more on the side of a maintainer. Um, but I did want to add, and this is a little bit different than what you guys were talking about, but uh, General Reynolds had a town hall um, a year or two ago when she was kind of reorganizing what the community was going to look like under the Deputy Commandant of Information. And she made this comment that I just think about all the time, and I'm going to butcher this, but the bottom line was like, I need to make changes to make people uncomfortable because if you're not uncomfortable, you're not going to fix what's wrong. And I think there's so many opportunities where you can just change one or two things kind of in the, the incremental steps that I think Jason was talking about, where you're not like reorganizing something entirely where, you know, it's going to take months and years to make it work again, but you're making these incremental changes to get people uncomfortable enough to be like, okay, like let's, let's relook at how we tackle this, or let's maybe change a policy document, or let's figure out how to do something different and maybe get a better outcome. And I just, that always stuck with me. So every time I like throw myself into a class or there's, you know, a task and I'm, I have no idea how to do that. I'm like, yeah, I'll figure it out. Because just the ability of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, uh, I think it just helps us. It helps us grow. It helps us innovate. Um, and I'll turn it back over to you guys. Hey, thanks. I just wanted to add in real quickly. Uh, Kyle made a great point, and he talked about TO and TE. And for the civilian listeners, just wanted to point out that's a table of organization and table of equipment. And that is the people you have to do the task and the gear you have to accomplish the task with. Kyle, over to you. So I want to change gears on us pretty quickly. Although I believe that, uh, Layla, you clicked on this originally, Jason then double clicked on it. So I guess I get to the ability to triple click today. When we're talking about balancing the needs of a warrant officer versus, you know, your command and your personal drive and professional development, and everything, how do you or how did you strike the balance between like making that magic happen on the keyboard uh, yourself, like innovating and then teaching the next generation and you know, being the mentor instead of the mentee through those processes. Like, were you able to use the same teaching tactics when you taught up in your commanders as well? Or, or is this a, a wholly different skill set of training your Marines? Jason, did you want to go first or do you want me to take this one? I can go first. So striking that balance, I, I was thinking about this and um, I think I divided up into three different areas that I worked on um, in planning in troubleshooting and in managing the network. So in planning, I would never write something into a plan that I can't do myself. So I thought it was important as a warrant officer to have a dev environment, to have a lab environment. And if I wanted to do something new, I'll be damned if I'm going to write it on some Visio diagram and just say best of luck to a Lance Corporal. I'm going to do it first. And then if things don't go right, I can go sit down next to a Lance Corporal and help him do it. Um, I think the next thing there is knowing their abilities. The, the, you know, if you're at the MEF, knowing the combat battalion, knowing the people at the MSCs, if you're at a comm company, 
knowing the people in the platoon that you're the SME for. You need to know what those people are able to pull off before you write something that looks awesome on a PowerPoint slide, but doesn't work come game day. So, you know, and this kind of ties into the last thing I said, but for, for planning, I tried to look at where they were, look at where I think they should be and eat that apple one bite at a time and do a little bit more each time, challenge them just enough that they're not going to screw it up and uh, drag them along with me. So for troubleshooting, I always had access to the network. So I would, if a problem happened, I'd let the Syscon do their thing and get the Marines working while I sat at my keyboard and tried to figure out what's going on. But I made it a habit to never, ever make a change. So once I figured out what was going on, or if I couldn't figure out what was going on, I'd go sit down with the staff and COs and the Marines that are working on the problem. And if I didn't know what's going on, I'd help lead them to it and they would make the change. They would coordinate with Syscon because I've seen a lot of warrant officers who jump to being the hero and just want to get on the keyboard and fix it. And then a lot of times that lets the operators that are supposed to be doing this stuff every day off the hook and they get used to, well, warrant officer so-and-so will fix that. Well, that's not really my job to fix that. That's your job and I need you to do that. So uh, yeah, I tried to not commit any changes. I would do my research, try to figure out what's going on and then go sit down and talk somebody through making the change. And then for uh, managing the network, I think is another chance to do this. So let's say we needed to make some kind of change in the network to support a thing. I'd pull in the staff and COs from that section. Hey, uh, I'm going to issue a directive that tells you to do this thing. Have you ever done that before? Oh, yeah, we do that all the time. Cool. No problem. I'll write a quick, simple detector, have the Syscon or the MCCC issue it. It's documented. They do it. Syscon, MCCC tracks it. It's all good. If they say, no, sir, I don't, I don't know what that is. Cool. Well, well, let's talk. You know, and I'll have a because I would have never wrote it in the plan if I don't know how to do it. I'll have a step-by-step -step guide on how to do that thing. I sit down with the staff sergeant with the gunny, walk them through it. Okay, look, we talked about this. Are you good now? Can you take this and go do it? Or do you want me to come with you? Because I'll do it either way. And it, it depended on the person. Sometimes it was, no, no, I got it from here, sir. Cool, I'll write up detector, issue that with the uh, steps as an enclosure, MCCC or Syscon manages it. And the staff sergeant or gunny looks like, you know, they, they knew what's going on. Um, sometimes they either didn't know and they wanted some help or they were disinterested and then I'd go with them and I would hand them my guide and let the Lance Corporal Corporal on the keyboard make the configuration changes while I'm sitting there over their shoulder. But again, they're making the change and I kind of guide them to it. So that's sort of those three areas. Uh, Jason, I want to I want to also add on to that. The amount of time that I spent writing instructions or like building configs in labs so that I could hand them over to the Marines to execute. It, it, and through that exact example you just said, if if warrant officers need to have one superpower, that's it. Know how to write a decent set of instructions that can be executed by somebody who may not have a single clue what is happening, right? It, it That is powerful AF and needs to be stressed over and over again. And that conversation alone, like, have you ever done this thing? Have you ever messed with BGP or have you ever done whatever? And if they answer no, great, your amount of work just went through the roof. But by the end of it, you're going to now have a set of Marines who know how to do that thing and mission accomplished from our like mentorship capability, right? Set, set another way real quick so that I can help. I know we're on the, the Warren Officer episode, but real quick for the uh, unrestricted among us. Start your questions in these scenarios off with, who do you know that has done this easy thing before? And if you get <laughs> look, left and right easy. looks, if you get looks left and right, you have your answer. 
I mean, what, what's the old adage? It's, it's what do I know? Who needs to know it? Have I told them? And do they fully understand, right? If, if you just follow those four things, you are an excellent communicator. It's as simple as that. Yeah. The only thing I would add from my perspective, and it it's basically just hits on everything Jason has had, but not with the amazing examples that he provided, um, is that it's not as much doing the action as it is mentoring the action. I think that's what the biggest thing for me is. So um, especially like in Signet, Signet, as I as I moved up, like the farther I got into more of a leadership position, I would still run similar queries. Like I would check syntax. I would be there as like kind of an oversight officer. But it was very much like if I was doing it, I was letting you know the enlisted or junior Marines do it first, and then I was going through it with them if there was an issue with their syntax or if uh, they were using the wrong databases to pull information back. So I think I agree in that aspect that just what I do now, it's more letting those folks that are working uh, for me or around me do the thing. And then if I see something that doesn't work or even it does work, but I want to make sure they understand how they got the results that they got, I sit with them and we have a discussion. So now we're going to go a little bit non-standard. We, we are metaphorically turning the table around and the microphone has been handed over to the guests. Leela, over to you. Yeah, so I had a, a few questions that I was working up for this podcast, and uh, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, Rich and John over the past six to seven months. For those of you that haven't worked at them, I literally have a reading list and a listening list. Every other day, I think they tag team uh, what I need to read or listen to. So if you are going to work for them or with them sometime in the future, just uh, be prepared that they're going to take you under their wing and provide you a, a ton of amazing material. Yeah, carve out the time now. You're going to be reading a lot. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so as I was working through like what we wanted to talk about for this podcast, there were a few questions that I had that I just honestly, I don't know what the answer is, but I know having the expertise on the call that we do, um, I'd love to ask a few questions. So the first question I have, it's kind of a two-parter and it is, uh, do you think the Marine Corps does a good job of maintaining its technical experts? And then how do we in, uh, incentivize those technical experts to stay in the Marine Corps? Um, so I will turn it over to the guru, but this is something that I think I've been struggling with that the 1700 community has been struggling with because we have amazing people and there is a lot of money for them doing the same thing, not in the Marine Corps. I'll stop there. I want to challenge that question ever so slightly, Layla, which is, do I think the Marine Corps does a good job of maintaining its technical experts? I do not. And I also think it's not the Marine Corps' job to train its technical experts. I feel very strongly it is the technical experts' job to train the Marine Corps. And to some extent, I feel that's why we do things like send uh, Major Shriner to fellowships with you know critical banking infrastructure to look at cybersecurity stuff and why we rely so much, and I think necessarily so, on the civilian sector to train us on the latest trends in technology in, in many different areas. Um, I... I'm going to kick it over to to John and Rich to talk a little bit about incentivizing technical experts to stay in the Marines as the guy who's gotten out of the Marines. But at the same time, I, I do think that the Marine Corps needs to allow for the technical experts to go do what they need to do. Um, I know it can be hard to say, I'm going to go on a sabbatical for five months to go learn something crazy cool. But you know, having a budget for you to attend training or you know regular availability to get trained in, in more critical cutting edge stuff. But I think the, the key element there is that once you learn that, how are the technical experts giving back? How are you training your command and the next generation of warrant officers or, you know, 
the fleet wide on the thing that you just learned? How do you talk to your chief foreign officer fives or your LDOs and say, hey, holy crap, I just learned about this new thing. We've got to change, you know, Marine Corps order ABC one, two, three, paragraph six, where it says this, because that's totally crap now. And we, you know, the world has changed. That's a huge piece of it. Yeah. So as we are ought to do, uh, Rich and I are going to tag team this one. So Rich, I'll take uh, how how do we maintain the experts you take incentivizing? So on the maintaining the technical experts, since we are on the Warren Officer podcast, I will say my community, both my previous in communications uh, and and, uh, newer, need to take a hard look in the mirror on how we use Warren Officers. Because if warrant officers are your reserve special project officers, i.e. captain ain't going to cut the mustard, I got a real easy, look, I have a technical really smart guy who can just figure out whatever I want him to figure out, cool, special projects guy, Uh, and now you're not really a warrant officer anymore. Um, I would say my community is, is partly to blame in many cases for why we lose our technical expertise. Because every time a captain or a lieutenant fails and you backfill them with a warrant officer, we are losing our technical experts because filling that billet is time they're spending not being a technical expert. Uh, And that is something massive that we can do to reinforce these things. We need to both hold them to these high standards that Jason and Kyle and Leela talked about, but we also need to not put them in positions to where they can't possibly fill that role. Yeah, so I guess uh, I'll pick up from there on the on the incentivize side of the house. Um, so I'm extremely biased. So I'm going to say that up front um, because of my experience, right? In my experience for for those who haven't listed all the casts up till now, right? Is I spent seven years in the private sector while transitioning to the reserves, and then came back on active duty, right? That's the twenty second version of that, right? So. Both Leela and Jason mentioned, in addition to the service component saying, hey, I've identified you via whatever talent management grassroots or grassroots or top down, that you're going to go fill these roles where I can retain the operational experience and the technical experience and put you in that new warrant officer or LDO leadership role. Both of you have had to kind of come up with your own uh educational innovation roadmaps. I'll just call them that, right? And then you had to self-fund those. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of people say, hey, we support the troops. Thank you for your sacrifice. But they don't realize that like, you know, Jason Kirk with his children and his wife is staying up after he puts the kids to bed and is doing that online degree, right? Or Leela is trying to fit it in. Like I have lunch from, you know, 12 to 1300 and maybe I'll just PT at 0330 and then for my lunch hour, I will I will do whatever I need to do in this new certificate program that I enrolled in, right, in some intelligence profession, right? So where I'm going with all that is I believe that we can get the same type of result by incentivizing our restricted officer community to go do time in the private sector on the Marine Corps' time, right? So... And I say that because that's my bias, right? And, and John, he, he did a fellowship, right, um, you know, at, at a financial company where he learned cybersecurity in the private sector. So he picked up all the bits and pieces in innovation because, let's face it, the private sector will innovate faster than the public sector. They have to. There's a thing called revenue. They have a thing called customers, right? So that helps them, you know, go through that innovation cycle a little bit faster. That's not to say that the DOD is not going to innovate on weapon systems because they have to, Right. But 
when this convergence of weapons, at technology as weapons, right, that may potentially feed kinetic and non-kinetic weapon solutions is a thing that's very real right now, especially in, you know, strategic competition. And now all we're seeing with, you know, the recent flare-ups and, and counterterrorism that are happening, um, yeah, I think it's extremely important that the service component, I'll just stick with our service component, but I do think that this is a DOD ride and whole of government problem, right? Not just defense related, but I honestly believe that we need to afford the time for our technical experts to go to the private sector, whatever that period of time is, learn uh, engineering or STEM type, uh, you know, uh, skill sets that are performance based, so they can then come back and apply them as a practitioner. Because uh, I think we do well in incentivizing folks to go to school, right? Like, hey, go to school, get this degree. That's great. That's there's nothing wrong with that. Your knowledge based skills are great. Your theoretical knowledge of things are great. And when people ask me, should I learn how to code in Python or should I get a computer science degree? I just ask them, do you want to have the knowledge in your head or would you like to actually create something real? Right, because then it becomes really easy to prioritize one over the other, uh, becoming a practitioner with performance-based skills. So, I know I'm ranting here a little bit, but I absolutely think it's critical that we figure this out. And and to Lila's point about books, right? There's a really good book that they teach everybody who I think goes through some you know top-level school TLS at National Defense University, which is called Forge of Freedom. Right, in the book, they make everybody read it before you come in because it talks about this relationship between the private sector. And the public sector and how the private sector can help feed the solutions the public sector needs without the nation losing speed in the competitive edge overall writ large. So again, a little bit of a rant there, but but I honestly believe that this is something we have to figure out and should put a good amount of mental rigor against. So Lee, I don't know if that, that helps answer your question or not, but uh, yeah, that's where I'll stop my rant. Yeah, Rich, I think uh, that's spot on. I mean, if something like that was available to, I think one of the first questions we have for whatever policymakers are out there agreeing with this or are ready to implement something like that, please make sure that when that MAR admin comes out, that there is a bullet that it applies to restricted officers as well as uh, unrestricted officers so we can get our warrant officers and uh, LDOs into those programs. Um, I think that's a great lead-in to the last question I had. Um, and this one... Uh, I think it's a little bit loaded, John. I know you and I have talked about, you know, the purpose of an LDO and whether or not potentially unrestricted officers that maybe don't want to have command time, but they want to stay technical could become LDOs. I think, you know, that's one of the things that I, that I was really thinking about and thinking about a question that kind of encapsulates that and a few other options. So here it is. What is the biggest challenge facing technical expertise in the Marine Corps? And I'll, I'll turn it over to you guys. So I think it's a dual pronged problem that we have, and it mainly has to do with judgment. So the reason why we can't institute some groundbreaking, amazing experimental stuff is judgment. Uh, we have, for the most part, I mean, look at some of the policies that guide what we're allowed to do. Spoiler, not written in 2021. Okay. And in, in some cases, if you want to really do some cutting edge stuff and you really want to build that that technical expertise you need the ability to try something uh very very cutting edge and if you don't even have the permission or the policy backing to try things to really build that technical expertise it's going to be really difficult 
for you to be a technical expert in a evolving career field if you don't have permission to do it. So I, I think the judgment in kind of interpreting policy on, on a less conservative basis and allowing people to get outside what everybody's comfort zone is, I think is a huge, a huge part of it. And then I think the other thing is what we hit a little bit before is incentivizing or we need to show that this is a priority. We need to show that technical expertise is a priority. We need to reward that. And we also need to think about the number of people that we have thinking about a problem and the number of people that we have actively solving that problem. As we dwindle those numbers smaller and smaller and smaller, you're putting more and more pressure on fewer and fewer people. And that's something that we need to work to the very best of our ability to alleviate uh, by having more people get actively involved and incentivizing, not decentivizing those people from getting involved. Yeah, I think there's there's two things that I'd, I'd like to, to mention here uh, as far as challenges go. I think the first one is there are technical leaders in different occupational specialties all over the Marine Corps, right? And all over the joint community for that matter. And I think one of the biggest challenges facing all of them is they're siloed inside of different institutions inside of the Marine Corps. So let me, let me unpeel that and unpack it because that's a lot, right? So in a previous cast, we talked about the namesake of the cast, right? The Phoenix cast, right? Well, one of the things that John and I were trying to evangelize was creating this organization or this task force that we call Task Force Phoenix. And the whole purpose of the task force was to deliver technical solutions and innovate. But more importantly, it was breaking down the walls between all of the organizations inside of the Marine Corps, both at the headquarters component and then in the operational forces, right? So that the operational forces and the headquarters components could stack their authorities on top of each other, right? So the authority to design and procure inside of Marine Corps Systems Command, right? The authority to budget inside of like, you know, programs and resources or PNR, right? The authority to go affect the network inside of, you know, Marfor Cyber or the Deputy Commandant for Information. Like, to me, that is the number one challenge to technical leaders in the Marine Corps, no matter what your occupational specialty is, right? How do I actually work with the other components of the Marine Corps to deliver a relevant solution that's timely and stay ahead of the power curve? Because we love to say as Marines, we love to say it, right? We love to say that, you know, we're going to improvise, we're going to adapt, and then we're going to overcome, right? And there are great ways to do that at the tactical, operational, strategic level. But if we don't break down the silos and start working cross-functionally and stacking authorities on problems where all of those technical SMEs can unite together and deliver something, and then to Jason's point, iterate quickly and move on to the next thing, then I think that's a challenge, right? The second thing uh, that I think is a huge challenge facing technical experts uh, in the Marine Corps right now is the fact that we don't have what I would call centralized code repositories where they can all contribute, right, and commit their knowledge in the form of usable syntax, right? So I have a little bit, again, of a bias here uh, against what me and John refer to constantly as meta work, right? PowerPoints don't win wars. PowerPoints don't deliver technical solutions, right? They're great for communicating those technical solutions to folks who might not have a technical background or folks who have a technical background and just need to kind of keep up with the conversation because you're moving fast through different talking points, right? But like, if we could start using comments 
inside of code repos to point people in different directions. Like this bit of code provides this function, right? To me, that persists. And the fact that we need to kind of generally create these code repos across um, you know, occupational specialties, it, it to me is a, a, a big limiting factor in, you know, I, I know I'm talking code repositories right now, and it's very specific to like software development to deliver solutions. But what I mean is like, it's really hard to go look through the Marine Corps publication library. I mean, they've gotten better, right? They're, they're online now. You can search, you can pick the pub, you can do a control F inside of your PDF reader of choice, right? And go look for your things. But what I'm trying to say is like, there has to be a way where we can contain our technical syntax somewhere that'll make it persist moving forward. And people could use those code snips uh, to, to, to solution other problem sets. So again, I know a, a bit of rant there, but, but I, I believe breaking down the barriers stacking authorities and figuring out how we use code repos to maintain our technical uh, knowledge resources uh, would be a great thing to unhinder most of our technical expertise in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And Jason, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add uh, for the last two questions. So to the last point, um, I I think we're really good at improvise, adapt, overcome at the MEF and below. Um, my last two years in the Marine Corps were spent at headquarters Marine Corps, and I'll be honest, it had a lot to do with why I retired when I did. I was naive enough to think that uh, I could get up there and do certain things, and I got there and I realized that it's built in some very, very strongly guarded silos, and I can't even come close to changing that. That is a problem so far above my head that we, we tried you know, making different ad hoc groups to coordinate across those. But uh, the headquarters Marine Corps is a, is a tough beast to, to work in. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a big challenge. And I don't know what to do about that one. Um, we've got a lot of different people driving the ship. As you mentioned, one person controls the money. Another person controls the requirements. Another person controls the network. Another person controls acquisitions. Uh, another person controls policy. Um, and none of those people work for each other. They all have a boss, the commandant, but the commandant doesn't get involved in technical stuff like that. So it comes down to trying to get those groups to work together, but they have different agendas. So that doesn't always work out. So that's it. At 22 years in the Marine Corps is when I went to go work at headquarters Marine Corps. And it was an eye opener for me. It's a, it's just a tough nut to crack to get that group to work differently to facilitate the kinds of things we want at the lower echelons. So I don't know what to do about that one. Um, About incentivizing proficiency. I think we do in a way. So we don't get paid to be proficient. We get paid for results, right? So if you are proficient and you're a good staff and CEO or warrant officer or unrestricted officer or LDO, and you can put those two things together and make results, then if you've got a decent boss, you're going to get good fit reps. You're going to get retained. You're going to get promoted. So I, I think we incentivize technical proficiency if it leads to stuff happening. Um, we try things. So on the enlisted side, we have bonuses, but those are blanket across the MOS. It doesn't matter if a staff sergeant is going to re-enlist and go off on drill instructor duty to be outside of his or her field for the next three years, they're going to get the same bonus as the technical expert in their field. So we try for, for chief warrant officers in general. Um, I don't think we do a good job of incentivizing it unless you've got an, a reporting senior who finds it important and makes it reflect on your fitness report. 
but uh, you know, like a, a couple on this call, I, I picked up Warren Officer Young, eight and a half years. I went to my required technical school. I could have done 30 years in the Marine Corps and not had another required technical school for 22 years working in IT. Seriously, that's that's ridiculous. Um, at a couple points, oh, that's career, an indictment. I tried to do something about that. Um, I brought it up to working groups and things like that. And uh, Rich, to your point about internships. The, the problem is we buy just enough restricted officers each year to fill the billets that exist. So if Jason Kirk is going to go on an internship to Google for six months, that means that Lieutenant Colonel Vaccarello, the second MLG G6, is not going to have a person in that seat for six months. So I, I spent my last couple of years sort of managing my little part of the Oc field. And uh, what I've learned is that we we all care about the collective and everything. But what people care about the most is having the team present who's going to help them win. So no G6 that I came across out there wants to do without their person for six months. Um, in fact, a lot of them didn't even want to let their person rotate at the end of their three-year tour because if chief warrant officer so-and-so leaves, the world is going to stop turning on its axis. So I, I had to have discussions like that with several of your peers because uh, they just, you know, this unit will fall apart if that person leaves. Um so we're almost like a victim of our own successes. We, we pick a warrant officer because maybe we think we're going to, we look like we're going to excel in a certain area. We get a school at eight years and we go out there and we make our own education plans, our own training plans, and we make it up as we go and we become critical to that unit. So I've seen internship ideas thrown around a couple of times, but where it always stopped is which commander or which G6 out there is going to do without his or her people while that person's gone. And uh, that's where it's always failed. So we had brought up with a previous Oakfield sponsor that a couple of you guys know very well that maybe we could buy a little extra inventory. So let's say there were 60 0630s. Maybe we maintain 63. So we always have a few spare people that could just go off and, and do stuff. But that just never seemed to catch on. But I, I think that's what it would take for something like that to happen. You would have to have some extra inventory just for practical purposes. No, no commander G6 wants to be without their team, especially if they're in a unit where they literally have one of each of these people. You know, if you're at the MEF, at the MEF G6, you have one spectrum person, one network person, one systems person, one RF person. And those three, those four people are pretty darn busy. So nobody wants to do without their guy or girl for the next six months so they can go to learn some neat stuff that might benefit the next command. Because that command's thinking about right now. They're thinking about MEFX next month and the exercise the month after that and the, the fact that they might get deployed in response to a thing. And they're not necessarily thinking about how if I went and did that, that I'd be really good for that next command afterwards. I have a feeling we could probably get this podcast to, I don't know, three or four hours. Uh, but in, in, in the interest of keeping it brief, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us off here as much as we want to continue. Uh, so, Kyle. Hit us with our hot take uh, so, we, so we can leave this thing with your pearls of wisdom. Yep. Um, I want to just say again, the difference between being an innovator and a maintainer is so critical towards anyone who's in a senior technical role. And in my opinion, you have to know how to maintain in order to be an innovator. And to some extent, you have to innovate in order to maintain better. It's this like yin yang, never ending, snake eating its own tail kind of thing. But you have to individually train your own skills to be a good innovator and to be a good maintainer. And it, as much as it pains me to do the cliche is if you're the smartest person in the room, it better be because you're training everybody else in that room to be smarter. And if you're not, if you're the smartest person in the room and you're not there to train, you better go find another room, warrant officer or LDO, because you owe it to yourself and to the Marine Corps to go learn. 
And if you're just there treading water, you are wrong. It is also worth pointing out, uh, Rich and I are outnumbered, and Rich has thrown up no knife hands throughout this cast. That's the pure intimidation. Pure intimidation of the Warren Officer and LDO community, just keeping his knife hands in the holster. That's all it is. I, I offer no comment or assessment. I simply turn it over to Rich for Rich's knife hand. <laughs> That's Thank you, guys. That's awesome. And, and I'll just say this up front. Who would not be intimidated talking to Leela and Jason? Right. I'll just leave it at that. You know, I get Kyle doses of Kyle, but the first time I talked to Kyle, I was pretty intimidated. No, you know, just, just to let you know that Kyle, all the love. Uh, but, but I think my, my knife hand moment for today is, is it's, it's around the talent management piece and the, in the incentivized, uh, incentivized piece. And I think what's most important here is I'll make an analogy, right? So whether or not you believe in natural selection, inconsequential to what I'm about to say. But the most important genes, right, that make a species valuable over time need to be self-selected for, right? So as a leader in the Marine Corps, if you're not looking for the right genes to self-select into the warrant officer and LDO fields at the grassroots level, and you're waiting on headquarters Marine Corps to do that for you, the institution and its traditions won't carry forward. That's why we tell Marines all the time wear uniform appropriately, do the right things out in public because the nation needs it, wants a Marine Corps, it might not need a Marine Corps. So if we believe, to Jason's point as leaders, especially the unrestricted ones in battalion command and above, that we need people to persist in our organization in order for the organization to be successful, then we have to take the risk to get those people incentivized and trained to stay around in the Marine Corps for the long run and make LDO or become a uniform uh, unicorn in the chief warrant officer five ranks. So that's my knife hand for today. John, I'll turn it back over to you. Thanks so much, Rich. And uh, Jason and Leela, thank you so much for coming on the cast. And dear listeners, thanks for joining us. You can connect with us on social media by going to Twitter and following at USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That is at USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Our editor is Sarah Clarkson, and marketing support is provided by Jake Osborne. You can support the cast by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a five-star review with accompanying sweet comment. And with that, we are out.